when I think of feminism, I don't think of women's equal right to be forced into killing other people. Um, that's just not what I think of. Good afternoon, this is your captain speaking with just a little flight information. We're flying at an altitude of 37,000 feet and our airspeed is 400 miles an hour. A couple little facts here, I'm packing a Colt King Cobra, that's a 357 caliber firearm with a black rubber grip and a six inch barrel, capable of piercing body armor at a distance of up to 27 feet. And I can put a hole in human bone and flesh the size of the Grand Canyon, which, by the way, is coming up on the left hand side of the plane. So just sit back and relax and enjoy the rest of the flight. No, not you, not you. Your organization's terrible. Should I tell you? Should I tell you? Oh, you're Boy Scout, but you know life. You know life. I'm totally off script right now. Hey, News listeners, it's Sam Carliner, and I am once again not joined by my co host as we are figuring out how to get back to doing Zooms with multiple people. That said, I am really excited to be joined by our guest this week, Danica Katovich, who is the Yemen campaign coordinator and peace collective coordinator for. Code Pink. Uh, for those who don't know, I recently started working at Code Pink, and uh, I know Danica does a lot of great work around some things that we've been meaning to do deep dives on this show, uh, have not. So we're going to be talking about that. Uh, just a, a teaser. It's going to largely be uh, updates on Biden's enabling of Saudi Arabia. Uh, also, the drone program. Both are sort of in the news, but not as much as they should be. And so uh, Danica, I think you're a really great guest to have this week. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. And for those who don't know, so my intro uh, sort of to you was, uh, I mean, we talked a little bit as I, I started, you know, being in more of the Code Pink chats, but I think really your article and truth out that you wrote on the drone program. Uh, you also wrote an article about the expansion of the draft. We'll get into those, but before we get into those, uh, you work a lot uh, in regards to keeping the Saudi war on Yemen on people's minds, showing support for Yemen. Before we get into the news aspect of that, can you talk a bit about why this was an issue that stood out to you as something you do activism around? Yeah, so just a little background um, on the war in Yemen. Um, it started sort of as a civil war um, in before 2015. 2015 is when Saudi Arabia and then the United States got involved. Um, and it's really an issue of Saudi Arabia not respecting Yemeni sovereignty and um, uh, Yemeni's right to decide their own future for their own country. Um, Saudi Arabia had <clears throat> vested interest in kind of controlling the government in Yemen. They wanted who they wanted to be um, in charge. So 
um, in order to prevent the Houthis, who the, who the Saudi Arabian government and military um, is fighting in Yemen from taking uh, complete control of the country, um, they've pretty much failed. Um, you know, in 2021, we can say that they have failed their war efforts um, while causing um, so much death and destruction. Uh, but it, yeah, so Saudi Arabia got involved in 2015. Um, the US uh, provided full support for this war. Um, at the beginning, it looked like arms sales to Saudi Arabia. It looked like one of the most egregious parts, I think, was the midair refueling that was going on. So the United States would refuel Saudi uh, jets midair so they could continue bombing uh, civilian areas in Yemen. That stopped in 2018 under the Trump administration. Uh, which which was a good step forward. Um, it looked like military training, uh, intelligence sharing was a big one. So the US really, really did support this war. And um, another issue <clears throat> that activists took with it, especially here in the United States, um, is that this war was not authorized by Congress. And that's been a huge uh, point of concern um, since Vietnam is if Congress doesn't authorize these wars, then does the president have full reign to do whatever the heck he wants um, to other countries? And that means that we, as residents of the US, we have no say in um, what's being done in our name because we can't call our Congress people about it because they didn't authorize it in the first place. Um, so in 2017 is when I kind of started working um, on the congressional aspect of it, which was passing a war powers resolution. Oh, passing a war powers resolution was just kind of advocates way of reclaiming congressional power um, when it comes to war making from the president. Um, it's very dangerous to have just one person be able to do whatever he wants. And especially when we have such a large arsenal of like nuclear weapons, the largest standing army in the world, et cetera. So um, it actually did pass the War Powers Resolution and I think early 2019 or late 2018, um, I always forget when it passed, but it was bipartisan. Republicans, Democrats, they both supported it. Every Almost every Democrat I think voted for the War Powers Resolution. Um, it was also, it was vetoed by Trump, so it didn't really go anywhere. We didn't have enough votes to override the veto in Congress, but um, it really made a statement that, um, you know, there is resistance to unchecked war making powers by the people who live in the United States, which is um, encouraging. And actually the first, one of the first times a joint resolution of disapproval, which is Congress's way of blocking an arms sale in the early uh, early days of an arms sale going through uh, was in response to uh, the U.S. approving an arms sale to the United Arab Emirates, which was a main uh, partner of Saudi Arabia in the war on Yemen. Um, that also got vetoed by Trump. <laughs> but there was a lot of resistance to the war in Yemen, especially in 2019 and 2020. Yeah, and before we get into some of what it's looked like under Biden. Can you also just talk a little bit about the impact of the Saudi blockade on Yemen? Because I know that's a big part of the devastation that the Yemeni people are going through. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, so the blockade on Yemen is the main driver of the humanitarian crisis. You have airstrikes, you have, um, you know, um, mercenaries in Yemen that cause a lot of problems. Um, activists have been saying that the blockade is the main driver of the humanitarian crisis. Because since 2015, Saudi Arabia has main, maintained a land, air, and sea blockade on the entire country. And this results in a lot of things, but I'll talk about kind of the public health aspect because we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Fuel has not been allowed to freely flow into Yemen for six years. So what that means is when food aid um, is coming into ports like Hodeida, which is Yemen's main port, there's no uh, there's no fuel to get the food. If the food was even allowed in, sometimes it's not. Um, there's no fuel to get the to fuel the trucks to get the food into the most rural parts of Yemen. So food can't get anywhere. And when fuel is blocked from entering the ports, um, hospitals risk losing power. I mean, Yemen's healthcare infrastructure has, has been completely destroyed by airstrikes. Uh, the, Saudi block, the Saudi coalition has regularly targeted hospitals. That's one thing. But also when there's no fuel to, to power hospitals, they can't function. And um, it's resulted in a, a shortage of water, which has caused the largest cholera outbreak in modern human history. So, you know, how do you fix cholera? You, you get clean water. They don't have access to that because of the blockade. Um, and, you know, actually what's so devastating is very recently, a couple weeks ago, because the Saudi government has locked down Sana'a's airport, um, a Yemeni man who is uh, who's from California, um, he went to visit Yemen and he got killed by, um, you know, mercenary forces um, because he couldn't fly into Sana'a. So it's just, it, it really does impact everyday life for people in Yemen. Yeah, and so I really do appreciate you bringing attention to it and I think a problem is that Biden and his foreign policy team really pushed this idea that they were going to hold the Saudi government accountable. It was, I think, sadly, I would say it wasn't so much the war on Yemen, but the uh, assassination of Jamal, oh gosh, Khashoggi, I think that's how you pronounce it, but uh, that really got people, I think, aware of just how awful the Saudi royal family is. And so Biden really, I would say, got a lot of praise for this speech he gave early into his administration. I think it was his first foreign policy speech where he said, we're going to be ending offensive, uh, uh, offensive aid, support for offensive operations on Yemen. But can you talk a little bit about how that left a lot of stuff out uh, and the consequences of sort of that half commitment we're seeing now in the form of a, I believe, $500 million uh, helicopter maintenance sale to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, so, you know, one interesting thing about that, it was a big celebration that he would even say that he's ending offensive support for the war in Yemen. I think that was like a big deal um, in its own right. <clears throat> But one thing to keep in mind is U.S. involvement 
in Yemen started when he was vice president. And it started under the pretense that we would be helping Saudi Arabia with defense. So I'm not sure, I'm not sure what the difference is when in February of 2021, Biden is saying that we will end offensive support for the war in Yemen. So that's a whole thing, but he did suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia, quite a few arms sales that have not been um, completed. Uh, you know, there's no there's no saying what will happen with those, but they've been suspended for months now, which is, you know, okay to good news. Um, but w so let's talk about like what's changed since that announcement and not a whole lot. There's still a blockade, which is um, terrible. And then also we the U.S. let private contractors stay to repair the jets of uh, the Saudi Royal Air Force. So, you know, the, the line between defense and offense is so, is so blurred because what is the Saudi Royal Air Force, what are they used for? What are the jets used for? They're used for drones, like uh, for airstriking Yemen. So I'm not quite sure how that's justified um, by just continuing to be extremely vague, but, um, yeah, so then, then we heard news last week of the $500 million in um, helicopter repairs to Saudi Arabia. We've had articles upon articles since 2015 of these helicopters being used um, for offensive attacks um, against civilians also. There's this one story from 2015 where Saudi Arabia was using, an, uh, I think, an Apache helicopter, and they attacked this village in Yemen, killed, I think, 25 civilians, and then left, came back, and killed three medics trying to help the people who were killed. So all in all, it was like about 30 people, at least 30 people uh, in this village in Yemen who were killed by these helicopters. It's happened, Saudi Arabia's used the helicopters, like at, even outside of Yemen, um, attacked um, a refugee boat from Somalia. I think that was also in 2015. Um, so I'm not quite sure how the Biden administration justifies these kinds of things to itself, but um, that, that news was, was very disappointing. Yeah, and along with the atrocity-packed war on Yemen, you also have Saudi Arabia's, I mean, very uh, awful persecution of dissidents. And I know you covered a little bit of this on uh, Code Pink Radio. Can you talk a little bit about sort of where Biden has been active or not active on Saudi Arabia's sort of persecution of anyone who calls for democracy? Yeah, so um, Lujain al-Hafoul, who's um, a Saudi woman who is in prison for driving and um, leading the campaign to um, give women the right to drive in Saudi Arabia was released very early on in his administration and Biden's administration, um, which was good. And I think he just said something like, wow, that's awesome. And like a speech, I, I don't think he commented on, on it very much, but he applauded it as like, a, you know, a good move. But the real, the, you know, realistically, I don't think that had anything to do with Biden. Like, because everyone was talking about how, oh, Saudi Arabia might start acting better now that Biden uh, said that he was going to 
crack down on uh, the Saudi government's behavior. I don't really think it had anything to do with that because the Saudi government has a long, long history of making very symbolic moves without changing anything fundamentally about the way they engage with their citizens. So I think Lujain, letting Lujain out was kind of a more of a symbolic thing. And, you know, thank God she's out and, um, you know, she's still under a travel ban. So she's not even free. She has a five year travel ban where she cannot leave Saudi Arabia. Her siblings are not like they're spread out. I think they're in Europe or Canada. She can't see her siblings. Her parents can't travel out of Saudi Arabia. So it's just, you know, she's out of prison, but she's not free. Um, so that's something. Uh, the interview I did on Code Pink Radio was with um, Dr. Abdullah Oda from Dawn or Democracy for the Arab World Now. He's from Saudi Arabia. His dad was a very prominent Islamic scholar in the kingdom. And um, <clears throat> he is currently in prison for a tweet. He was arrested for a tweet calling for peace between um, Qatar and Saudi Arabia. So, <clears throat> you know, there's still so many dissidents um, in Saudi prison. And I haven't really seen Biden, especially when he's continuing arms sales, continuing diplomatic support for Saudi Arabia. You know, he's not really ap applying any serious pressure um, to get these prisoners of conscience released. Yeah, and I wanted to start with the, in my opinion, more important but underreported news pertaining to Saudi Arabia, but also wanted to talk about sort of the bigger reason they've been in the news, which is that Biden has been declassifying FBI documents pertaining to 9-11, which uh, have long, people have long suspected would implicate Saudi Arabia in the attack. Uh, I pretty sure that I, I remember hearing that the reason he released them was not necessarily out of the goodness of his heart but because the fam victims of the family's victims of 9-11 uh, were asked to attend uh, an event you know after 20 years and refused to unless these documents were declassified can you talk a little bit about sort of what they reveal if anything in terms of uh, the Saudi role yeah, so <laughs> I think only one's been released so far. Um, that was either on 9-11 on the 20th anniversary or the next day. And you're right, the families um, were like, you shouldn't come to the anniversary if you don't order for the declassification. And he didn't order the declassification. He ordered a review for declassification of these documents. Um, and so more hopefully will come out in a couple months. And then a couple months after that, it's like, it's like, he wanted this FBI document from 2016 released by 9-11, the 20th anniversary. And then he wanted more uh, more reviews for declassification done by 60 days after that. And then I think 180 days after that. So I think we have a long road of, um, you know, I hope um, people's attention doesn't get lost there um, in the wait. But the one that was released um, more recently was an FBI report from 2016 um, that basically revealed that there were two Saudi nationals in the United States. One was a diplomat and the other one was a, a government staff um, 
who had certain interactions with the hijackers, I think the 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 staff member, the government staff, um, had dinner with the hijackers at some point before 9-11. Uh, so um, he originally had said the story was that he just ran into them and talked to them. But uh, the document that was released recently reveals that um, they met at dinner and had like a very long talk. So um, I don't, I don't think it was super important. I don't think um, a lot was revealed more than like people didn't already kind of assume or know. So it's really about looking out for what comes out next, I guess. Yeah, um, and it will completely destroy the Saudi-US relationship or not. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm skeptical that at this point, if anything uh, short of like some, I would call it a miracle, will destroy the US-Saudi relationship. Um, but ho hopefully as those come out, uh, we'll be able to cover those on this show and yeah, hopefully there will be more attention. I do want to switch to sort of the other big thing I wanted to talk about with you, which is another, I know, uh, topic you're invested in, which is the drone program, which is also surprisingly in the news because as I think probably anyone listening to this show may know, but I'll just recap for people who don't know, uh, on Biden's, uh, on the U.S.'s way out of Afghanistan, and I want to specify troop withdrawal because it looks like we are still going to be doing bombing campaigns there. But on the troop withdrawal, of course, as people know, the Kabul airport was attacked by ISIS-K and Biden vowed revenge uh, and launched a drone strike on what he claimed were ISIS-K uh, affiliates or, or terrorists, but because the New York Times and Washington Post did their own investigative reporting into this drone strike, we now know that Biden killed an international aid worker, Zamari Ahmadi, and his family, including seven children. And I... I mean, it's, it's, my voice is breaking up a little bit because it, it is really just gross to talk about, but uh, one thing that I know you wrote about, I believe prior to this strike happening, was that this isn't exactly new to the drone program. You, you wrote in Truth Out about Abdul Rahman al-Alaki, uh, and I apologize if I pronounced his name incorrectly, but he, he was another... Uh, as high profile as, as drone program victims get. Can you talk a little bit about this other case for people who might not know of the drone program and just the, the general violence behind the use of drones? Yeah, so yeah, I wrote that article, I think a week before um, the drone strike in Afghanistan that everyone's talking about happened um, because it was Abdul Rahman's uh, Alalaki's birthday. Uh, he would have been turning 26 in August um, had he not been killed by a U.S. drone strike. Um, Abdul Rahman was born in Denver, Colorado. Um, he's He was an American um, boy and um, he was visiting his, he was staying and living with his grandpa in Yemen. Um, he was in southern Yemen at the time when he was just eating dinner with his cousin <coughs> and um, 
a drone strike ordered by Obama killed him and his cousin and a few others in the restaurant. Um, and this was only two weeks after the US killed his father, Anwar al-Awlaki, who is also an American citizen with a drone strike. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's the violence of the US drone program is widespread. A lot of, you know, it doesn't really matter that Abdulrahman and Anwar were Americans. It doesn't actually, it doesn't make their lives more valuable. But I like to point it out because a lot of Americans think that the drone program doesn't apply to them or that they're excused from the violence carried out by the US drone program when they're not. Um, <coughs> so, you know, the, what happened in Afghanistan is not new. The Pentagon apologized and they, or the department, whatever, um, apologized and said it was a mistake. But the whole drone program is a gross, gross mistake. Um, targeted killings is, is terrorism, especially when you take into account how many <coughs> civilians the US has killed with drones since the war on terror began. Um, you know, Abdul Rahman's case was very high profile because he was an American and um, because it was a mistake also. The Obama administration, all they said about it was that he was not the intended target. Just like the, that family in Afghanistan were not the intended target of a drone strike. Um, so he's very high profile. He was 16 um, when he was killed. So if he had not been high profile, if it had not been a, a news story, he would have been classified as a military age male or as an enemy combatant, even if he was a civilian. And they knew he was. So the drone program is just, um, you know, I'm glad that this is getting a lot of attention because this has been happening for 20 years. Um, thousands and thousands of, of civilians have been killed in Yemen, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, um, and, and so many places. So um, I, I am glad it's getting a lot of attention. And, you know, right now we have um, a drone whistleblower who, um, Daniel Hale, who is in prison uh, for a multi-year sentence for telling us exactly about this. Ex he, the information he revealed was that civilians get killed. They don't count young men as civilians sometimes. Um, the president authorizes these uh, targeted assassinations. And sometimes the, the US uses very faulty intelligence or no intelligence at all to carry out a drone strike. Um, and he's serving a multi-year sentence for things the Pentagon is a, a publicly apologizing for. Um, so if you want to sign, uh, anyone listening wants to sign Daniel Hale's pardon petition, you can go to codepink.org forward slash Daniel Hale um, and support him there. Yeah, no, I appreciate you plugging that because I wanted to touch on it. And just one sort of, I don't know if it's a sidetrack, but like a little connection I just want to make is, is as you mentioned, uh, it's not necessarily that American lives matter more, but that it's important for people who might feel detached from the drone program to understand that this, this is our fight too. And, you know, one connection I always try to make is the way policing in the U.S. is a lot of times connected to, uh, you know, it's a lot of the repression and weapons that police here use on black communities, Latin communities, and just poor communities in general, uh, 
develops first uh, in the Middle East and, you know, in the war on terror that we did. And drones, I think people saw, there were like, during the protests, not this past summer, but the one before against police violence, there were drones flying around U.S. cities. Um, so I do think that's an important thing to just note. Uh, I don't know if you want to maybe, I think you did a good summary of it, but if there's anything more specific you want to touch on with Daniel Hale, because I think that's a really important case, and I, he was prosecuted under the Biden administration. I don't know, you don't have to elaborate, but if you have more you want to get into, please feel free. Yeah, so <clears throat> he his prosecution could have began under the Obama administration, but it didn't. The Obama Justice Department, for whatever reason, did not charge Daniel Hale. The Trump administration did, and that's that's where his case started under, was under the Trump administration. It finished under Biden. Um, <clears throat> God knows why his uh, Department of Justice didn't feel like stopping the case. Um, but, you know, it really just- I interrupt, sorry, just, I, I hate interrupting, but my suspicion, I, this isn't fact, it's just my theory, is that it didn't stop under Biden because that enabled Biden to drone strike the Ahmadi family. You know, I, I think they're connected. Yeah. This is my theory. This I mean, off. <laughs> I mean, the drone program has been uh, used and abused by by both parties. So you know, it's um, uh, just speaks to a larger, I think, issue of prosecuting whistleblowers. Because, you know, we, we say we have a democracy. I don't know if I agree with that, um, but we say we do. Um, but what does it mean if the only information we're allowed to receive comes from the government? Daniel's, the, what Daniel revealed was of a very high public interest. We had, we had a very vested interest in knowing about all of this. Um, uh, so, you know, it's useful information, I, and I I am glad people are paying attention to it now, because um, this is all information we need to know. It's all information we suspected, and we were lied to about. We were lied to. We said that the Obama administration made multiple speeches saying that the that the drone program is accurate, it's useful, it's better for fighting, fighting terrorists or whatever. Um, you know, I, I would argue that the drone program has um, made more enemies than any. So, yeah, I mean, I know that terrorists sort of use drone strikes to recruit. They they point out, and I think rightfully they they point out like, hey, look, the U.S. you know killed civilians with their bombs, and then they use that you know fear or anger of the U.S. terrorizing countries to. Uh, radicalize people. I I think that's that's all I had in mind about covering the drone program. But just before we go, I want to get to one last uh, I think underreported topic that I know you've been doing work around, which is this expansion of the draft, uh, painted as this uh, act of feminism, which I know you disagree with and have again in truth out written about uh, along with. Code Pink's Peace Collective, which you're welcome to plug. But yeah, can you get into this whole expansion of the draft that's sort of going under the radar? Yeah, so um, Congress uh, has been in the process of being informed about what it would mean to add women to the selective service system, uh, which if passed would mean that women um, of 
I think age 18 to 25, would have to register a selective service like young men do um, have to in this country, which means if we ever had a draft, which we haven't since Vietnam, um, then women uh, would get drafted to a compulsory military service. And when I think of feminism, I don't think of women's equal right to be forced into killing other people. Um, that's just not what I think of. So um, our article, The Peace Collective wrote, was about how feminism to us means that um, no one ever should be forced into compulsory military service. Um, so <clears throat> abolishing the draft and abolishing selective service would be the ultimate feminist act on this issue, <coughs> but right now the amend so it's it's right now it's in the National Defense Authorization Act, which is going through Congress literally today and yesterday and probably tomorrow and next week. But um, that um, that amendment is in there to include women in the draft. And just to give people sort of a legislative update, they're kind of going between adding women to selective service, but taking away the penalties of not registering, which content it would be good for the most part um, to get rid of, because if you don't register and you're supposed to, you lose your right to financial aid for school. Um, you can get fined, you could get arrested. I don't think that's happened in a very long time. But um, so getting rid of those penalties for not registering would kind of mean that no one has to register for the draft. We don't need it. We have such a large volunteer. We have the poverty draft, which also needs to be abolished, um, where the military makes uh, poorer people feel like joining the military is the only way to economic security. And our capitalist system has definitely um, ensured that that is the case. Um, so <clears throat> the draft and, and, and military recruitment is definitely a part of the war economy to be wary of and to be um, aware of, but, um, so if it passes without getting rid of the penalties, then that's a massive issue that needs to be resisted. And, um, you know, we do as young people need to start pushing for the abolishment of the draft. And even if people think it, a lot of people think it's symbolic, like we'll never have a draft again. It doesn't really matter because the military wants young people as like endless cannon fodder. If we are ever to go, to um, <clears throat> war again in, in that kind of scale where we need to draft. But um, just something to be aware of, uh, call your representatives about it. Um, the Peace Collective is working on it. The Peace Collective is Code Pink's youth cohort. So it's a bunch of really, really awesome and fun young folks, college to high school age-ish, sometimes older. Um, so just under 30, I would say. Um, we have book clubs for anti-imperialist education. We do organizing workshops. You get to meet a bunch of really cool older activists at Code Pink. Um, sometimes the authors come to our book clubs, so that's exciting. Um, but you can go to codepink.org forward slash peace collective and click join us to fill out a form and sign up and you'll get an email from me. Um, it's really fun. Uh, Sam, you're like a, a, more of a member of it. I'm more of a facilitator. So if you want to speak to how it's been going, um, that might give people more context. Yeah, I mean, people should look out. I've been sort of working with the Peace Collective on 
a writing project, you know, a group writing project where sort of we reflect as people who grew up during the war on terror of like all the ways we've seen it like militarize our culture and, you know, the contradictions that you notice as a kid, but maybe don't speak out as much because you think the adults are probably right. Um, I don't know exactly what shape it'll take because it's in the early stages, but I'll update people on that. I'm very excited. And I just want to backtrack a little bit just to give, you know, some thoughts on something you said, which is uh, this idea that the draft, you know, people say it's symbolic. And I definitely think that, that you're right that, you know, it still matters. I mean, I think one, culturally, we're seeing the military try to recruit along these lines that like, oh, we're progressive, you know, women empowerment, you know, we support LGBTQ plus people now, which one just isn't true. I mean, there's rampant uh, sexual abuse of women in the military uh, and I'm sure homophobia and transphobia, but then also like, even if say, you know, American women and American LGBTQ plus people do well, uh, you know, in the military, what is the U.S. military doing? It's empowering regimes like Saudi Arabia, which are horribly anti-women, anti-LGBTQ+. Um, I mean, we don't have to get into it because this would be a whole thing, but I know, it, you know, Afghanistan, the U.S. military presence was actually horrible for women uh, and set back, along with giving rise to the misogynistic Taliban and also set back a lot of progress for women that could have happened there. I also want to add one more note for our listeners uh, before I let you go, which is that uh, my understanding is also that once you register for selective service, uh, you I think you're put on like a list within the military database, which just pumps out more recruitment ads to you. Like I, I know... Uh, I, I did sign my selective service thing because I was like, I don't want to be arrested, and if the draft comes back, I'll just draft dodge. But I, you know, once I signed it, I was getting like pumped out all these recruitment ads, and I was like, this isn't why I signed it. I signed it so you won't arrest me. Um, so uh, you know, that's I think another way where even if we don't have an official draft, it could maybe increase uh, likelihood of recruitment. So yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing attention to problems with the selective service and and pushing back against it and can i just say one more thing about that you know the the language about expanding the draft is not new and it's something that the anti-war left needs to be more cognizant about when the military when the state department when the pentagon when the president when congress members use social justice language to say we need to go save these people we need to go we need to uh liberate people they've been using it forever everyone says it's kind of a new thing humanitarian um war it's not you know we we went to war in afghanistan for the women like that was like to save afghan women first of all it assumes that people in the global south are not capable of saving themselves which is not true um so there's that, you know, we can mind our own business. But also, you know, if feminism is being used in the context of the military, if um, anti-racist language is being used in the context of the military, it is always to co-opt the left's language, always. And, and to make us feel comfortable with war when it's not comfortable. So um, 
just something to be aware of in any sort of talking point situation with the State Department or the Department of Defense. If you ever hear that language, like the red flags are going up, just just very be very, very aware of how it's used. Um, especially when, you know, the State Department says things like, oh, we need to save uh, this certain Muslim community by going to war with this country. You know, the, uh, famously, the Department of State and Defense have not cared about Muslims in any genuine way. So be very wary of it. That's that's my piece of unsolicited advice for the listeners. Yeah, and I mean, I really think that's a, a great note to end on. Danica Katowicz, thank you so much again for taking time to come on the show. And if you want to plug anything else or, you know, where people can follow your work, please feel free to do that right now. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, follow Code Pink. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. My at is wife of toast. I keep thinking I'm going to change it, but I'm just not going to. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stick to my guns. So uh, wife of toast on Twitter. Um, you can you sign up. Bible recently. Huh? Oh, yeah. I had a tweet about 9-11. Do well. Um, it's always scary when that happens. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter, um, Code Pink. Uh, just launched a new campaign to end the U.S. arms trade. You could check that out at codepink.org forward slash call to disarm. So check that out. Um, and all of our other campaigns like Cut the Pentagon, um, our Yemen, Palestine, Iran campaigns, please check it out. Please do. And this has been News Dive.